Well, after a, uh, after a one-week break that we took together to celebrate our anniversary last week, we're back in the letter of James this morning, and we come this morning to what's probably the central text in the whole letter, the centerpiece of it. It's definitely the longest, most detailed explanation for one of James' most important ideas. Now, one of the things we've said about James from the beginning of this series is that he loves to allude to and to unpack things that Jesus said. Of all the texts in the New Testament, this one seems to be as close as any, if not more close than the rest, to what Jesus said. Uh, it makes sense. If the author of it was Jesus' brother, like many think, uh, the traditional view is that Jesus' brother wrote the, wrote the letter, it makes sense that he would have been right there, front, uh, front row seat for the things Jesus said and did. And he sees it as part of his mission to help other people remember what Jesus said, understand it, and then start working what Jesus said into their lives. So the text that we come to this morning echoes strongly one of Jesus' most haunting words to those who followed him. In his Sermon on the Mount, a long teaching passage that Matthew records in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus comes to a passage that is, I really, I really believe, haunting, the best word for it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, For him, that day was the day of judgment. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? We were with you, weren't we? And then... Will I declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These words of Jesus are behind James' concern in this whole letter. James is a pastor. He's writing to his people, scattered, by persecution all throughout the Roman world. He wants them to be holy and happy in Jesus. And he doesn't want them facing shock when they reach the end of their lives. Facing the horror of standing before Jesus and being told I never knew you. One of James' major themes throughout the letter is self-deception. The problem of Christian, professing Christians, thinking they're Christians when they're really not Christians. James assumes the possibility that you, friends, you, might think you're a Christian when you're not. 
That's his central theme of his whole letter. And, and today, in the text we're going to look at this morning, it's the central theme of this passage. The main point that James makes in this text is clear. In a way, it's crystal clear. It's stated over and over again. It comes up in verse 17. Faith by itself it does not have works, is dead. Chapter 2, verse 17. Comes up again in verse 20 of chapter 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Again, in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then finally in verse 26. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's your point. Comes through over and over again. This morning, I want to do two things, answer two questions. What does James mean when he says that faith apart from works is useless? And how should we respond to what James means? Those are our two questions. God help us. I want to begin by reading the text together. I'm going to read verses 14 to 26 of James 2. I'm going to ask you now, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was Not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. You can be seated. What does James mean when he tells us over and over again that faith apart from works is dead? That's the first question for us this morning. James helps us to see what he means with four really nice illustrations. He's a pastor. He wrote to explain, to illuminate, to persuade. He's great at illustrations. He gives us four of them in this text that help us know what he means when he says that faith apart from works is useless. The first two of his illustrations give us a negative view. What faith is not. Faith is not like this. And then his next two illustrations give us a positive view. Faith is like this. 
So on the negative side, faith is not like the person who just says to one who has nothing, be warm, be fed, and does nothing else. And faith is not like the demons who confess that God is one, but don't obey him. Faith is like what Abraham had. Faith is like what Rahab had. We want to take these illustrations one at a time and see what, see what he's trying to teach us by them. Here's the first thing he's trying to teach us. What does James mean when he says that faith apart from works is dead? First thing he means is that faith is more than what you say. First thing he means, faith is more than what you say. Words are cheap. It's the point of the first illustration. Um, it's closely tied to what he talked about in the, earlier in the chapter. You know, just, just previous to this, in chapter 2, he imagines a scene where somebody comes into the back of one of their worship gatherings and they are wearing all kinds of fine clothes, clear that they have money, power, influence, and the usher takes them down to this prime seat, sits them here. Here, you sit here. This is the place for you where everybody can see you for who you are. And then somebody comes in in shabby clothes, someone who doesn't have anything to offer, someone who brings their needs and the usher takes them and says, here, you, over here on the floor, by my feet. You sit by my feet. James has said, you don't get to be with Jesus and show that kind of partiality. This first illustration is taken straight from that same idea, that same image that he's already given us of a community in which people don't really show genuine concern for others who are in need. Imagine somebody struggling to survive. James describes them in verse 15 as someone poorly clothed, lacking in daily food. In this time, there would have been no safety net. There were no rescue missions where someone could go on a cold night. There was no place for a warm meal. If you lacked clothing and you lacked food in the first century Roman world, you would die. This wasn't about their comfort. This was about their survival. Now imagine somebody says to them, boy, I really hope things turn around for you. Blessings upon you. Blessings. Go. You know what? Here, while I'm at it, be warm. Be fed. Wouldn't that be great? Why don't you just go ahead and do that? Just go ahead, be warm and fed. Imagine they say these things but do nothing. What good is that? Who's helped by that? It's useless. In fact, their words say that they want those in need to have what they need. But their actions show that what they really want is to hold on to their comfort, to hold on to their possessions. Their actions show what it is that they really want. And James says, faith without works, faith that's just words, but never shows up in your life, is dead. It's useless. It doesn't save. His warning to us is this. Friends, do not assume that you're a Christian just because you claim to be one. Words are cheap especially in America, and at least for the last hundred years, especially in the South, sometimes saying you're Christian can actually get you ahead. 
Sometimes that's something you got to do before you can get on, elected for any public office. It costs us very little to say we're with Jesus. And James is warning us that just because you said at some point in the past that you wanted to be with him, just because you claim to love him now, just because, to use Jesus' words, you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you're a Christian. You could say that and still be far from him. What does James mean? When he tells us that faith apart from works is dead, the first thing he means is that faith is more than what you say. The second thing he means, comes out in the second illustration, faith is more than what you think. Faith is more than the ideas you think are true. It's possible to be convinced of true things about God, about what he's done in Jesus, about what he's promised to those who trust him. It's possible to think these things are true and yet not actually have faith. Faith isn't, here's the way one person put it. I like this. Faith isn't believing that something is true. Faith is believing in something true. Faith isn't believing that. Faith is believing in, arresting in. Now, this comes out in his next illustration. The next analogy is in uh, verses 18 and 19. It starts in verse 18, where James imagines somebody possibly objecting to what he's saying. I think, what he's, I think the objector here, when he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. I think what the objector here that he's imagining is, is saying is basically, you know, some people are good at works. They love, they're really into service. Other people are good at faith. They're really into you know, the ideas of the, of the Bible, of what Jesus has said. They're good at summarizing them, at teaching them, at understanding them. You know, in the body of Christ, everybody's got their own calling, right? It's okay for some to be, have one niche and others to have another niche. In other words, it's possible to separate faith and works. That's what the objector is saying. Each to his own. James says, absolutely not. You can have ideas that are true and not have faith. And the demons are a perfect example. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. That's a quote from the most important belief that all Israelites held. Think of the, of the, the opening statement in their law. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will have no other God before me. The fundamental thing that that, that, from which everything else they believe flowed. You can get that spot on right. Guess who else does? The demons. They know it better than you do. You can imagine James thinking, because they've been standing against him from the beginning, and they can't get anywhere, because this isn't some fair fight. There is one God. They aren't it. They know that. So you can believe in one God, and you do well. You do what the demons do. But it's not enough. You can believe that and not have faith. Here's the warning. Friends, don't assume. Because you can answer 
all the questions. Because you read theology in your spare time. Don't assume that you have faith. If I could summarize what James is saying so far. Why faith apart from works is dead. He's making the same point that he's been making all through the letter so far. And that he keeps on making to the end of the letter. Self-deception is a real thing. Self-deception is a real thing and it's a real problem. He doesn't want you to be self-deceived. All of us have known examples of things we've seen, things we've even been guilty of where our perception out of step with reality. It's hilarious sometimes, right? Seinfeld fans among you will think of the, con- of the consistent theme of Elaine's dancing. I'm getting like two smiles out there. It tells me this is, a, this is not a Seinfeld crowd. <laughs> Google it. It's hilarious. I'll give you another example. This one will work a little better. So uh, I, I am now a Nashville recording artist because I showed up for about an hour for the group vocals on the new CD. Real studio, me mic'd, headphones. And what I learned through this process about how it works is that you, the head, in the headphones, you're hearing everybody else singing and you're hearing the pre-recorded lead vocals and, the, and the, uh, the instruments. You're hearing a lot of beautiful sounds in your ears, which gives you confidence, okay? Uh, and it makes you think you sound awesome. So we were about a song and a half into it. And I was just singing my heart out, thinking, man, I sound I could do this. There's not that much to this. And then somebody suggested you give it a try without the headphones on. And I took my headphones off. And I heard myself in real time. I heard what anybody else who didn't have headphones had been hearing the whole time. <laughs> Whoa. Not pretty. Friends, James doesn't want any of us having that aha moment when we stand before Jesus. And that could happen to you. Maybe you've said publicly that you're a Christian. Maybe you even agree with the teaching of Christianity. Maybe you even know the ins and the outs of that teaching really well. But faith is more than what you say and it is more than what you think. Faith always, always shows up in what you do. It shows up in how you live. And that's the point, that single point is the point of the next two examples. They're both positive examples. Don't be like the guy who just says, be warm, be fed. Don't be like the guy who just thinks God is one. Be like Abraham. Be like Rahab. Both of these examples pull people from Israel's history who were there at pivotal moments. These two examples, in one sense, they couldn't be more different from each other. You've got Abraham, a man, the father of all of Israel, the one through whom the promises of God come to the world, promises of a new world to be made through this new people. 
Abraham is at the center of the story of the whole Bible. And then you've got Rahab, a, a woman, barely mentioned in the story. A disgraced woman at that, a prostitute. But what Abraham and Rahab shared was the same faith. And it was a faith that showed up in what they did. Now, I want to I walk you through what he says about Abraham and Rahab. Then we're going to come back to it at a higher level and try to un- understand what he means, again, by the fact that faith apart from works is dead. I know there are questions percolating there. Maybe you're hearing some echoes of Paul's language read for us earlier in this service. And you're thinking, all right, somebody's going to have to help me figure this out. We're going to get there, all right? But first, let's just take James's examples, unpack them together on their terms, and then we'll come back and do another pass, all right? What did Abraham do? What did Abraham do? His example comes up in verse 21 of, of chapter 2. Abraham was the one who was given the great promises of a new people in a new place, the founders of a new world that God would establish in place of a world dominated by sin, selfishness, and death. In Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham gets these words from God, these great promises. In fact, God promises Abraham, even though he was past the age of fertility, he was going to have a huge family, a family so big that he tells Abraham, you can go outside, look up at the stars, see if you can count them. You can't, you can't count them. Your descendants are going to be more than them, more than the stars. Abraham goes out, he looks up at the stars, and we're told he believed. At this point, he had seen nothing. All he had was the word of God. All he had was the promise, and he believed it. And Genesis tells us that God considered him to be righteous because he believed it. At that point, what he had was faith in promises. But James wants us to look at the time when his faith was put to the test. Early on, all we can see was a faith that was in word. In Genesis chapter 22, we see a faith that plays out in his deeds. Genesis chapter 22 is that strange, horrifying, but pivotal story where Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. He's called upon, in other words, to take this thing that was the biggest, most visible pledge that God really could fulfill his promises. The thing God had given him as a sign of those promises, the son he had always wanted. Abraham is told, take that son and kill him. If you really believe, I can make good on what I've told you. And Genesis chapter 22 shows Abraham, true to his faith, actually willing to stake everything on the word of God, on the sheer promise that God had made to him. Even if that meant putting an end to the visible sign that God could fulfill his promises. Abraham proved willing. His faith wasn't just what he said or what he thought. His faith showed up in what he did. What about Rahab? Her story comes out in Joshua chapter 2. So, so now fast forward in Israel's history. They've just been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. 
They're on the cusp of this land that God had promised to give to them and to their descendants, but the land is inhabited, and it's inhabited by big and strong armies and cities that have incredible defenses that there's no way Israel could penetrate. So Joshua, who's now leading the people of Israel, he sends two spies into the first major fortified city on the edge of the promised land, a city called Jericho. He sends them in there to figure out the lay of the land and to come back and report to him. When those two spies get there, they find refuge and shelter in the home of a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute. It makes sense in a way that they would go to her, that she would be able to shelter them. It would make sense to people in that time, in that place, who knew her and her reputation, that she would have two strange foreign men in her own. But the king got word of the spies and sent a search party. The search party, apparently going house to house, finds Rahab's home, enters it, and Rahab, this prostitute outside of the people of God, hides the spies, sends the search party away, gets rid of them, and then helps the spies to escape. In the process, she risked everything. She put her whole life on the line. She didn't just tell them, I'm with you. Good luck. Hope you make it. She said, let me take care of you. I will go down with you if necessary. And Joshua chapter 2 verses 9 to 11 tell us why she did it. She had heard about what God had done for the Israelites in Egypt about what he'd done for them ever since as they made their way towards the promised land. And she believed that this God was going to give them that land. And she wanted on God's side. That's why she did what she did. But she didn't just hedge her bets. She didn't carve out a way that she'd be okay if Israelites failed, but would also benefit from it if they won. She put everything, her whole life, with Israel and Israel's God. That's where her faith showed up. She had genuine faith because faith always shows up, always works out in life. Now, I know that at least some of you have been wondering, what is, what is this meaning of James about faith apart from works being dead? What does this have to do with what Paul says in so many of his letters where he says really clearly that Faith alone is able to make a person right with God. God saves only on the basis of faith, not faith plus the works of the law. How do you square, in other words, how do you square Romans chapter 3, verse 28, which says this, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. With James 2.24, which says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I think to understand how these two perspectives fit together, we need to understand that language, a lot of times, all the time, language always depends on context. That the meaning of words and phrases always adapts for who the person, to whom the person is writing, for the, the purpose for which they write, for the points that they're trying to make. And just like to communicate with each other carefully, we need to always try to take those things into account, especially 
when we're reading words written by men thousands of years ago in language that's different from ours, we need to not just take things on the surface, but spend the time that's necessary to dig under there and figure out on their terms in a way that's, that's sympathetic to them as writers what it was they were trying to say. And we do that work. James and Paul fit perfectly together, like hand in glove. I'm just going to summarize for you I think the way these things fit together, and then I'd be happy to unpack a lot more of the details with you later if that'd be helpful to you. I think one of the, the first things we've got to do to understand how these two perspectives fit together is we need to understand Paul. We need to fight a misunderstanding of Paul. Even in Paul's early letters, Paul is responding to people who misunderstand what, he's, what he means when he says that faith alone is what justifies a person before God, makes a person right or approved in God's eyes. So if you, if you want an example of this, you can look at Romans chapter 6, where Paul's imagining somebody saying, if, if, if it really is all about faith, then why don't I just sin some more, so then God will need more grace, and he'll get glory from that, right? The more I sin, the more grace God has to show me, which means he gets more glory. And Paul says, no, may it never be. Romans chapter 3 is making the same point, pushing back against the same misunderstanding. See, what Paul is interested in is, is pushing back against people who believed that it wasn't enough to trust God's promises. You also had to prove yourself to God. That before God's promises would be for you, you had to clean up your act a little. You needed to reach a bar that the law set for you. Until you could reach that bar, the promises weren't for you. Paul says, no, no, the first thing that matters is that you stake everything on what Jesus has done and on Jesus having done everything. That's what Paul's arguing over and over again. James isn't so interested in the order of things and how thing, in what order things work. James isn't so interested in Paul, as Paul is in the fact that faith is what justifies you and that works come as a result of your faith, of your faith playing out. James is more interested in the quality of faith that saves. James isn't arguing that faith plus works save you, but that only, the only faith that saves anyone is a faith that always shows up in works. I think to understand James... That verse 18 is the key here, chapter 2. This is, this is him pushing back against that guy who's trying to suggest you can have one or the other. You can have faith or you can have works. Each to his own. You know, go with what comes natural to you. James is saying, no, uh-uh. That is not a faith that does anyone any good if it's divorced from works. And then James says, I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, any faith that's genuine shows up in the way that you live your life. It always will. You can see the same point made in his Abraham analogy. Paul uses the same verse about Abraham that James does. That claim that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul uses that in Romans to show that he was saved by faith before he'd done anything. His faith is what made him righteous in God's eyes. James uses the same quote of God saying to Abraham, about Abraham, you are righteous, years before he ever sacrificed Isaac. James uses that same 
quote to show, to to tie back into his sacrifice of Isaac, to show us what kind of faith Abraham had at the beginning. If you want to know what kind of faith it was that was credited to him as righteousness, all you need to do is look at Genesis 22 when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son because God told him to. That's the kind of faith he had in Genesis 15 when it was declared to him as righteousness. The kind of faith that puts everything on God, that that stakes it all on him being who he says that he is. Faith that does anyone any good is always a faith that shows up in works. It's one thing to believe at one level, have a kind of faith that, say, a bridge is structurally sound, that it'll hold you up if you walk across it. One thing to have, say, read a lot of the details about the construction of our pedestrian bridge downtown as it was happening. Maybe even go down and watch some of the work. It's another thing to to sit down there at the foot of the bridge and watch people go over it. And you can say, I believe that that bridge is structurally sound. It'll hold you. That's a kind of faith. But genuine faith and the faith that James is interested in, the same faith that Paul is interested in, is a faith that walks your kids across that bridge goes up and over believing that it will hold. That's the only kind of faith that does anyone any good. The only kind of faith that saves. The only kind of faith that justifies. So if that's what James means, that faith that shows up in life is the only kind of faith that's useful. That faith that never shows up in life is a useless dead faith. How do we respond to that? I'm going to spend these last couple of minutes putting some things on your radar. I think three steps are healthy here. We respond by examining ourselves, by looking to Jesus, and by loving one another. And the first thing we've got to do is examine ourselves. We can't dodge. We can't afford to dodge here the weight that James is trying to heap on us. He wants us shaken up at some level by the, by the, the fact that we might be self-deceived. And he wants us paying attention to our lives. And James himself has offered us a great resource for doing just that. James When James says faith without works is dead, he has some certain works in mind. His whole letter is trying to put things on our radar that ought to be in us. That if we we have genuine faith and we've taken it into ourselves and we've kind of internalized it and it's become an instinct for us. So at the command center of our lives, it's how we interact with the world. Then it'll show up in some specific ways that James is trying to show us. So we can just go through James and you'll see what kind of works he's talking about. You start at, at, at chapter 1 and ask of yourself, do I have a faith that counts it joy when things are hard in my life? That holds on under trial. Do I have a faith that resists temptation rather than blaming God for it. 
What about how I use my tongue? Think of chapter 1. The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God, James says in chapter 1. Those with faith are quick to hear. They're slow to speak. They're slow to anger. What about love for God's word? Chapter 1 said, the one who's with him looks into the law of liberty, into the perfect word of God to be shaped by it. Do you love God's word? Genuine religion that matters before God is a religion that shows concern for the widow and the orphan. Do you? Or how about partiality two weeks ago? First part of chapter 2. Are you picky about who you love? Those with faith aren't. Those with faith love like Jesus loves. James is written to help us examine ourselves. To shake us out of our apathy. Out of our assumptions. And to cause us to pay attention to our lives. And I want to encourage you as you examine yourself to use the community for that. He's all, God has put us together so that we can see each other, so we can be watchful over each other. Your self-perception, as one author put it, is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. It's distorted. You need other people looking. And, and you need to invite them, make it easy on them to speak into their life, to share with you what they see. The second thing we need to do is look to Jesus I can imagine a variety of ways you might be feeling right now. And in all of them, what you need most is Jesus. Maybe you realize after hearing this word from God this morning that you're not a Christian. That he's never made any difference in your life and now you know you need him. That's good news. That's his gift that you see it. And the good news to you, friends, is that Jesus came for sinners. He came for the sick who need a doctor, not for those who have it all together. He came for you, if you'll trust him. You just need to be willing to stake your whole life on him being true. You need to be willing to have him take control over everything in your life. If you are, Jesus will save you. Maybe others of you are now unsettled. You've heard these words and they've scared you. Maybe you're not sure whether you're a Christian or not. Encouragement to you, friends, would be don't don't be afraid. Look to Jesus now. Look to his promises now. There can come a point where self-examination goes too far where what it does is keep you absorbed and obsessed with yourself. Looking only and ever inside, never outside to Him. True faith always shows up in your life, but it is never aimed at your life. It is always and only ever aimed at Jesus. And He is the only confidence any of us have that won't let us down. 
So if you're not sure what to do with this text, if you're not sure what it means for you, then my encouragement to you would be, stop pressing about that. Look to Jesus now. It doesn't matter whether you were with him when you were six years old and you got baptized, whether you really were a Christian in high school, whether you were this time last year or even this time last week. Ultimately, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that you're with him now that you look to him now. And that's why James wrote this text, to point you straight to him. Focus on the character of Jesus, who was everything you were supposed to be. Focus on on the work of Jesus, which has accomplished for you everything that had to be done to make you clean and at peace with God. And focus on the promises of Jesus, which reach out to you right where you sit. They're yours this morning if you'll believe in them and claim them. And then maybe, maybe there are some type A's among you out there who love a good challenge and live to perform. And you heard James raise the bar here and you're like, yeah, I am on it. You are ready to do some good works. that's where you are friend you've got to stop right here and you've got to look to Christ or you'll do no good at all the only kind of works that matter are works that aren't about your resume they're works that are the natural and inevitable fruit of your love for Jesus and your confidence in him friends if you just try to work so that you can prove that you pass James' test, then you're not addressing the thing that James says produces good works in the first place. He's saying faith leads to works. It's not faith plus works. It's faith that is shown by works. So if you just focus on the works first, try to beef up that resume, then you're basically just doing what morticians do all over the country. You're putting makeup on a corpse You're trying to make it look okay for the family. You're trying to hide the fact that there's death here, decay, uselessness. You focus on the works, you're just prettifying a corpse. It's not going to do you or anybody else any good. In fact, it might do more harm than good because you trying to prove yourself is going to lead to the anger that true faith pushes back against. It's going to lead to the self-righteousness that shows up in partiality when you prefer some people who get it over people who don't get it. If you just try for works directly without feeding faith in Jesus first, you're not going to do yourself or anybody else any good. So look to Christ. We respond to James by examining ourselves honestly, by looking to Jesus wherever we might be. And then we respond to James well by loving one another. This whole letter is here to show you specific ways you're supposed to love each other if you're really with Jesus. Because Jesus' love for us shows up in our love for each other. Think about the letter of James as a manual for what you should see in your life if you really want to bring honor to the one who loved you by the way that you love other people. Once we're looking to Jesus, it is fully appropriate for us to do the hard work of loving each other well. It is fully appropriate for us to focus on the things James says should be in our life and to try to practice them. 
to actually discipline ourselves, to say no to some things and yes to other things based on what he said. That's not trying to prove yourself to God. That's trying to please the one who made you, the one who came for you, the one who is always and only for you in Jesus. So look to James and love one another. That's how we respond to him when we respond in faith. Father, we need your help to respond in this way that honors you. Thank you for speaking to us even when what you say is disorienting, maybe even frightening, threatening. Thank you for what you've said to us by this letter. And now we pray that you would make us a community of people who do good works because Jesus is in us, because that's what happens when his promises take hold of our hearts. Give us this faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.